0: Thank you for visiting theopenword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of this series from Alan Schaefer.
1: Welcome to our tenth lesson in the Gospel of John. In our session today, we're going to continue our look at the Upper Room Discourse after Judas has left to go off and betray Christ. We will begin in John chapter 13, verse 33, and go all the way through John chapter 14. So join us as we begin today's study. John 13 and 14 tonight, so let's uh, open in prayer. Father, thanks for this time we have to study. I pray that uh, you take these pages and open the truths to us. Thank you for this insight into Christ and into the, the last night he was with his disciples. I pray that we would understand what's going on here, that we would comprehend the truths that are here and that they would make a difference in our lives in Christ's name amen um, I think last week we left off right around verse 33 All right. what um, set in the stage here what what's the significance of the of chapter 13 14 15 and 16 what's what's the setting here?
0: The end of Christ's
1: ministry. Right. It's the end of his ministry. In fact, it's the last what? Okay. Yeah, it's the last time he's with his disciples. This is the last shot that Jesus has to communicate something to these people these guys. And what were they where were their heads at? What were they concerned with? The disciples yeah position who's going to get to sit where who's going to run what tribe and they were trying to jockey for position and power here and Christ of course is focused on the cross right so you have two completely different focuses here and what has happened just prior to our section here that we're starting on? What had just happened? It's just
0: Lazarus. It's Lazarus is
1: no. Yeah. Here, Judas. Judas. Judas just left, right? So who who is with Christ now at this time? Well, it's the eleven faithful disciples, right? Judas is gone. Judas has left. And from at least what we see in the text here, evidently, who knew what he was really up to? Well, maybe Peter and John. The rest of them really didn't know what was going on. They thought he was going to go out and do some errand that Christ was sending him on, or something like that. They, they didn't know that he was going to go out and betray Christ and, and you know, to the to the um, religious leaders. So. You have only the 11 here. And now that Judas is left, Christ can really get down to the important stuff with the 11. The really important stuff. And the first thing he starts out with is now is the time for me to be glorified. What does he mean by that? He'll show now is the time that it's going to be evident or evidence to others why I'm here. And, of course, he's talking about the crucifixion, right? Why did he come to die on the cross, to provide redemption? Now I'm going to be glorified. Not only that, but God himself is going to be glorified. And then he says, here, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. As I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you can't come. So now I say to you. He says, Simon, this, this is the last great instruction that Christ is going to give his 11 disciples. He said, I'm, I'm going to be with you just a little while longer. Matter of hours now. Not days, not months, not weeks. Just a matter of hours. I just got a few more hours with you. And he calls them little children, which is a term of endearment. Little children. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, we know now what he was talking about. What was that? His death, right? And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this we'll all know that you are my disciples. You have love for one for another. This is the new commandment that Christ gives his disciples, the new one. The great new commandment. And the new commandment is that they are to love each other as he has loved them. Now, how has Christ loved them? Yeah. And how have they responded to that with each other? I want to sit on the left hand. No, I want to sit on the right. No, I want to sit there. No. They were arguing and fighting and scramping and exalting themselves. This is the great. This is the great commandment that we have from our Lord. We're to love one another. How do we do that? What does it mean to love another person? What does it mean? If I'm to love you as Christ loved us, how how am I supposed to love you? Unconditionally. Unconditionally person before yourself yeah um, all of the, I mean you know look, remember what it says in first Corinthians 13 love is kind gentle patient okay um, love doesn't seek its own love is not boastful it's not arrogant it's not proud it's not self-serving love seeks the best for the other person. Love is always outward focused on someone else. It's never inward focused. And what had been happening all along with the disciples is that all of them are worried about where they, they, where they are going to be in the coming kingdom. What position do they get? What place of authority do they have? What's in it for me? And the prime example of that was Judas, right, who bailed because he thought that he wasn't going to get what he wanted. And one of the great things that plagues the churches today is that we are in it for us. What's in it for me? And that's why, as we've talked before, any, any gospel presentation, any message, any, any sermon by anybody that gets on their TV where there's an emphasis on your personal health or well-being or your, you know, what God's going to do for you or what God owes you, is off to start off with. Because love is not concerned about what's in it for me. You don't even need to listen any further on that stuff. And Christ is commanding. Th- th- it's a commandment here. It's not a suggestion. I, you know, I really like you guys. I suggest you love one another. It's a new commandment. And actually, if you think about it, this—if you boil the Ten Commandments down, what's 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 the common element in all the Ten Commandments? Love, right? And the lawyer had it right when Christ asked him, "Well, what's the greatest commandment?" Well, the greatest commandment is to love of the Lord your God, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor, yourself. And on this hang all the law and the prophets. Why is that? Well, if I love God, I'm not going to be idolatrous, am I? I'm not going to have any other God before Him. If I love Him, I'm not going to misrepresent Him, right? By making a graven image. If I love Him, I'm going to spend time with Him, right? I'm going to keep the Sabbath. I'm going to spend time with God. And I'm not going to take his name in vain. What does that mean to presume on his character? I'm not going to just take advantage of God's good nature. And if I love my neighbors myself, I'm not going to lie with the, against them, right? I'm not going to cheat them. I'm not going to kill them or steal from them. If I love my parents, I'm not going to disobey them. I'm going to honor them. And I'm not going to covet what you have. I'm not going to commit adultery with you. And that's what the Ten Commandments are about. And Christ is really hitting it here. If you if you focus on loving other people, a lot of the stuff falls into place. You don't have to worry about, where's the list? <laughs> what list do I keep?
0: Do you think without original sin, a natural inclination would be selfless love? That's correct. Yeah. <sighs> what it's going to be like in heaven?
1: Well, in heaven we're going to have the, you know, we're going to be made righteous. So we're going to have a transformed nature. Mm-hmm. We're not going to focus on ourselves. There's no need to focus on ourselves. I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's correct to say that. That had Adam and Eve not sinned, they would have had a perfect love for one another. They were in innocence. All right. right. Um, th- yeah, I'm not sure. You know, if you say, well, if I just subtract my sinful nature, I'd naturally love. I don't think you could say that. Um, I think there has to be something there that causes us to love. And, and really, you know, it's, it's what... Paul says in Romans, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's God who gives us that ability to love. You know, one of the characteristics of God is God is love. And, um, you know, love is one of those what we call communicable attributes of God. It's something that we and God share, not, not of the same level, but we share Love. God loves. We can love. God's omnipotent. We aren't. So we don't share that. But we can share love. Um, God loves in a perfect sense. um, And someday we will too. Right now we don't. Because we're fallen. But that doesn't uh, eliminate the commandment of God here to. Or commandment of Christ to his disciples. Listen. You need to focus on loving one another. Because this is going to mark you out as my disciples. Now think about that. Compare pure Christianity. Let's, let's say there was a group of Christians in the first century. Let's pick a group. And they perfectly loved one another. Right? So you do that. How would they compare to the Pharisees?
0: Quite a contrast in what way? It's pretty strange to everybody. Um, you got people loving each other over here, and then you're like, Well, wait, these guys are religious leaders and they're not loving us. These people who don't even know us are loving us.
1: Mm-hmm. But even within the community, what was what was the dynamics within the Pharisaical community? Selfishness. Selfishness. I invited you over to dinner because you're going to invite me over, right? I mean that's what Christ said. If you he says if you invite the wealthy over, you're no better than a tax collector and a publican. They do that. They're not stupid. Invite the poor over. Invite somebody over that can't pay you back. And what was the Pharisees completely focused in on? Themselves. Themselves. How can I be more godly than that guy? And they they constantly had this running tally system where they were comparing their supposed righteousness and holiness with everyone else. Now, when you do that, there's two ways you can pull off being better than someone else, right? You can actually be better, work on being better than them, or you can make them worse. Mm-hmm. Right? And the Pharisees had no compassion at all for anybody that was not of their group. I mean, think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Here's a guy that's beat up. He's dying. He's left on the side of the road. And along comes a Levite. And what does he do? He just keeps on walking, right? He doesn't want to get messed up. Gone comes a religious leader. What does he do? Same thing. Then the Samaritan comes along who's really the avowed enemy of a Jew, right? And he has compassion on the guy and takes care of him. And Christ is making a point there. Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is the one who's in your path in need. That's who your neighbor is. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what the lawyer said. Well, who is my neighbor? Right? Uh-huh. Christ said, I love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, okay, who's my neighbor? Well, let's see. Your neighbor is a guy on the side of the road, beat up, left for dead. And you're a Samaritan. You're to care for him. And the religious muckety-mucks, they just walked right on by. They had no compassion. And no care. In fact, Christ scolded them on multiple occasions about their complete lack of compassion. And when they did give alms, why did they do it? Because they cared about the person to be seen of men. It was all for external show. It was all for image. They didn't love one another. And the Sadducees certainly didn't love one another. In fact, Christ said the thing that's going to mark out my disciples from everybody else is my disciples are going to love one another. And now, let's look at world, let's look at the world. You know, what religious system in the world exhibits even in a imperfect sense, this kind of love? Well, there's only one, right? Do Hindus love one another? No, I mean, if you if you if you if you're suffering, you must have done something evil in a past life, and I better not interfere. Or I might get stuck with your curse. I dare not help you because obviously you're suffering because you deserve to suffer. <laughs> Look at Islam. Do they love one another? No. In fact, the big brouhaha was interesting. They're talking about what's this guy on Arab TV telling telling men how to appropriately beat their wives? Wow, that's that's really interesting. You see, you see that? Yeah, it was it was it was some guy. It was, it was Fox News, and, and this guy. It was like a call-in program in Saudi Arabia, and he was telling you know somebody how to appropriately beat their wife.
0: You so were telling them how to do it? Yeah
1: the I better not tell you because I don't want you to go and beat your wife, you know. But, but but
0: it's Yeah, he should probably
1: slap slap you around. You know. But the thing that Christ has given his disciples is the thing that's gonna mark you out different is if you have love for one another. By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. And in fact, this is one of the marks of early Christianity. You read some of the secular writings going on. And one of the characteristics of the early Christian church is their love for one another. They love one another. They would die for one another. They would care for one another. And that was atypical of that day. Where everybody was in it for them. What could they get out of it? Christ command them, and also he's doing it, he's really scolding them in a positive way. Love one another. John, if you love all the rest of them, you'd rather see them have the right hand than you. If you really love them, it wouldn't matter to you what position of authority you have. You would defer to the other person. And we don't want to do that nowadays, do we? Mm
0: -hmm. We don't
1: want to defer. We don't want to give up our rights.
0: Although it works pretty well in
1: men. You have to give up your rights to win, don't you? Christ told them, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And how has Christ loved them? He loved them to the end. In fact, he loved them so much, he gave his life for them. Christ did not demand that the disciples minister to him. I was just listening on Fox News the other day. I, I guess the IRS is investigating some of the mega churches. You, re, you hear that? Yeah, they're investigating some of the mega churches. Uh, you know, yeah, Cruffle Dollar here. Here's a guy with a million dollar home, and it's like.
0: Joyce Meyer.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just sitting here. Let's think about this a minute. What do you need a million dollar home for?
0: Well, yeah, what do you need it for? <laughs> mm-hmm. To brag and speak in tongues. Well, write, good for him. He bragged about what he got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
1: but think thing. about that. yeah. You know,
0: You're really to him. That's what he do. He brag about what he got. I mean, mm-hmm. well, let's just talk know. about people who don't got it and talk say that's what he's talking about him because they mad about what he got. If it's a doctor, it,
1: it, it, Can you imagine the Apostle yeah. Paul, if he lived today, flying around in his own private jet,
0: <laughs>
1: with with $800 Armani suits? I doubt it. And that that's why you know that's why that's why our our, our stomachs should just be revol- repulsed by people who are in it for the money you know who claim to love the lord and they're running this massive ministry and they're driving around in limos and rolls-royces and million dollar homes and granite commodes which the one I had a granite commode twenty 25- five thousand dollars for a toilet, that's tough you know, that's that's pretty expensive. You know,
0: you're
1: twenty-three. three, all right, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, and it's that's like
0: a real throne, Yeah <laughs> I guess. Whoa.
1: And it's like that's
0: crazy. When people are giving money to the Lord to pay that paycheck. Yeah. That's what that's what getting me. Mm-hmm. How could you be giving how could you be given to the Lord? <laughs> I don't get that part by it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do that it, You know, the <laughs> you know, Lord. was, was, was going to say, I, mean, I I read. I didn't even mention Rev. Dollar, but I read in some of the mail of Christianity and so forth. Didn't past. I think Joyce Meyer was under that for you know that sort of thing, that lavish lifestyle. And also even Hank Hanegraaff, who mm-hmm. well, he's got eschatology, just, but I mean, where he was a lot of a, what computers, many different mm-hmm. things. You know, he was up in the air. They were investigating him. I mean. seems to be happening all the time with people with
1: ministries. Well, I think what the IRS is pointing out is something very, that I think is very profound. It should be very profound, and it should be in the sense of every Christian is why would someone who preaches the gospel supposedly, who's in it to bring the good news, why are they living in million dollar mansions with extravagant lifestyles? That doesn't compute.
0: It seems no, really There's a
1: disconnection there. But
0: a, a, a lot of times, that, um, they use that to draw more people.
1: I understand that, but but.
0: I mean, you're, you're the
1: understand? true God, the true man. I'm I'm arguing that the true minister of Jesus Christ is not going to live like that. That's what I'm arguing. That's what I'm arguing. I, I can't see any one of these 12 disciples or 11 disciples living like that. I, I can't see it. Apostle Paul did not live like that. Christ said the bot. you know, it's interesting because um, now you got some of these boys there that 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 really distort and twist the scripture. You know, because Christ said, you know, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests and the son of man doesn't have any place to lay his head. And John Avanzini says, well, that's because the disciples didn't make lodging arrangements. Had nothing to do with him not having money. He had all kinds of money. Christ was wealthy. He wore designer clothes. You know, that's what he said. Christ had designer clothes. And and Christ. Yeah. why Christ Well, there, there's, there's a certain brand of doctor that could tell you where that's coming from. Um, look, that's, that's a rape of Scripture. That's a twisting of the Scripture. Christ had to have Peter go get a fish to pay their taxes. Don't tell me he had all kinds of money. There's nothing in the Scripture to indicate that. Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content, whether in plenty or want. And yet we have a Christianity today that equates wealth and personal power and prestige and with God's blessing. And Christ is saying, "Love one another." If these people really love the church, they wouldn't be living these kind of lifestyles. I'm sorry, they'd be giving it away.
0: Correct well, me if I'm, I'm wrong, Alan, but I think a good example was the late Bill Bright. I think he lived through. I mean, I don't think he ever drove big cars or big
1: Bill Bright made, I think when this whole big scandal went around, he released his IRS tax forms, yeah. and he made like 20000 a year.
0: Know,
1: yeah. All right, this was back in, what, the mid-80s, yeah. 90s? And uh, we went out there, you know, Donna got to meet Vonette Bright there, and she drove, um, they had a Lincoln that they drove, but it was a Lincoln that was donated to the ministry. Some person actually donated a car for him to drive. He did not buy that car himself. It was donated to him by someone who gave it to the ministry. That's the most extravagant thing he had. Yeah, he
0: was pretty humble.
1: But he did not. You know, his his income was not very large, and Billy Graham's was not large. You know, and it's interesting when you look at the salaries of the guys who didn't make a lot of money. They were the they were the ones. Billy Graham, Bill Bright. You know, Charles Stanley, you know, and then you look at these guys up here, Baker, Swaggart, yeah. and all these guys making millions of dollars, Tilton making millions of dollars. And, it's, it, you know, I, I don't want to beat this horse here, but when we love one another as Christ loved us, Christ did not go around trying to accumulate a great deal of wealth. Why? He's not going to need it. He's dying on a cross. What do I need to to amass a great fortune for? For what? doesn't mean we're stupid with our money. doesn't mean we don't take care of things and we're not allowed to have a house or drive a nice car. But that can't consume us. And there comes a point when you have to say, you know, enough is enough. A good example of this is um, John Wesley. John Charles Wesley. I can't remember whether it's John Wesley or Charles Wesley, one of them. But uh, when he died, he died almost penniless. I think it was Charles West, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it caused some consternation to the British government because he had made millions of pounds in those days with the music that he wrote, the songs. I mean, the guy wrote a 1,000 hymns or something like that. And come to find out what he did is he gave it all away. When he was, you know, it said said what what got in mind this is he... He had all this you know he was making good money and and he saw this this english um, house servant or she was shivering cuz it was so cold she didn't have anything to keep warm enough clothes to keep warm and it got him starting to think there that you know i got more than i need you know so he he what he did is he set a budget that he he was going to live on and anything over that he give away and when he died he didn't have hardly anything he didn't a massive fortune What are you in it for? Christ says, love one another. Give of yourself. Sacrifice for the other person. And he says, if you have more than you need, find somebody who has less than they need and give it to them. Help them out. Love one another. What we've done is we've given that over to the government, which has really made a mess of things. Because if you do this, everybody's going to know you're my disciples. And then Simon Peter pipes up, he's always piping up. But he's asking the question. Peter asks the question everybody else is thinking to ask, but they just don't ask. Lord, where are you going? Now what is Peter thinking yet? yet? Or Christ is gonna go on a trip somewhere. You know, one of the things you need to understand this the disciples had zero understanding of Christ's death until it was over. The last thing they expected was him to die on a cross. Now, he told them a couple of times, but they didn't get it. They were living in the expectation that Christ was going to establish his kingdom. And even here, the last few hours before the betrayal, Peter's asking, well, where are you going to go? Are you going to take a trip somewhere? Why can't we go with you? Totally missing the point of Christ's death, what he was trying to say. And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. You're not going to die yet, but someday you're going to die. You'll follow me, but now you can't. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Why can't I go with you now? I will be willing to die for you. And of course, what did Christ answer them? (laughs) So will you lay down your life? Before the night's over, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times.
0: sound like he knew it. He, I don't even know, he didn't, he didn't know what he was saying. Though.
1: He didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't know what he was talking about. Now, by comparing the other Gospels, we understand a little bit more here. Christ says, Peter, Satan's desire to have you to sift you like wheat. I prayed for you that your faith fell not. Um, Peter, what, what we see with Peter here is is a total reliance on himself. And we need to understand something. If we rely on ourselves, we're going to blow it every single time. The score is going to be 100 to nothing against us. We are not going to, you can't do it. If you don't, if you think you can whip this Christian life and you can do this, aside from the work of the Holy Spirit or the power of God, you're deluding yourself. You're just asking for trouble. And of course, we find that that's exactly what was going through Peter's mind, right? Peter thought he was going to hang in there. He's not going to deny the Lord. Peter had no idea of what was coming up, he had no idea of what was ahead of him. And when he decided, I'm going to depend on my own strength and power, Christ basically said, You're going to lose. You can't win. And unless, you, and of course, Peter was depending on his own strength, his own power. And of course, what happens? Well, he does deny the Lord three times. And and the, the lesson here: don't ever say, "Well, I would never do that, son." One of the one of the things that goes closely with love, uh, a character that goes can in hand with love is humility, right? Do proud people love other people? No, not really. You can't, right? It's sort of an exclusive kind of thing. If you have love, you don't have pride. If you have pride, you can't have love. You need to have humility where you consider others better than yourselves. You think of them, and you realize that in and of yourself, you 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 can't win. You can't make it on your own. When it comes to Christian life, the Christian life is impossible to live on your own. You cannot do it. And unless God grants you strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to blow it every single time. And Peter did, right? Didn't he? Everybody else will deny you. I won't. Everybody else will fail. I won't. Yeah, you will. If you're depending on your own power, you'll fail. And in Peter's case, it it really shattered him that he failed. Don't depend on your own strength and your own power. And then in verse 1 of chapter 14, Christ really comes to the disciples and really tries to give them a proper perspective don't let your heart be troubled. The, the Greek construct there actually says, stop allowing your heart to be troubled. There's a lot of confusion going on here at this time. Christ is saying about going away, and, and Peter is going to deny the Lord, and Judas is left, and, and there's a lot of things up in the air, and they're a little unsettled, and Christ is telling them, calm down. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. That's a statement of fact. If you believe in God, command, believe in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. You know, and and they're going to be, I mean, their next three days are going to be total, absolute chaos. Their entire world is going to unravel. The bottom is going to fall out. Of everything they had been dreaming and thinking of. And unless we were there walking with Christ for three years. Anticipating the soon coming of his kingdom. We won't understand the the absolute um, despondency that they faced when Christ was dead. We thought this was the one. Remember the guys on the road to Emmaus? We thought he was the Messiah. But he's been dead for three days. Um, Christ, and and, and now, let's, let's understand here. Why is Christ telling them, don't let their heart be troubled?
0: Because he knows he's about
1: to die. He knows he's about to die, but that's part of what? Well their dream is collapsing but his death line, it's part of what? Well, yeah it is but
0: it's
1: God's plan. Right? God's right on schedule. It's part of the plan. Why are you worried it's part of the plan? There's nothing to worry about. God is sovereign. Look Folks, if you really, you know, we, we talk about it in here, and we talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation and, you know, predestination and election, that's important, but we really need to grasp as Christians, God is in charge of everything. And when you look around the world, and you see Pakistan running amok, and you see Akminab or whatever his name is, over in Iran, frothing at the mouth, and and... And the stock market is tanking, and Hillary's spouting off, and Carrie's talking nonsense. And it looks like, look, guess what? God is in charge.
0: <laughs> Outside the box, right? That's how you yeah. Outside the box.
1: God is in charge. <laughs> and poor old John on the Isle of Patmos, God says, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. I'm going to show you meteors hitting the earth I'm showing you a third of the population of the earth being destroyed here and a quarter there and 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 the oceans turned to blood and and fire and smoke and the devastation of the ecology and the, and the economic system and the destruction of mankind but before I show you all of that I want you to see something I want you to see a picture of heaven and in John chapter 4 who's sitting on the throne in heaven God is. And you don't see anybody running around heaven, right? You don't see the red alert flashing in heaven. You don't see God bringing his hands trying to figure out what to do. You don't see the Trinity off having a consultation on how they're going to salvage this mess. God is in charge. And no one in heaven is worried about what's going on down here. In heaven they're worshiping, right? They're not they're not worried about, you know, is somehow this thing gonna unravel and everything gonna be fouled up. And no, they're not worried about that at all. God is in charge. And Christ is trying to calm his disciples here. Listen, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, now believe in me. This is all part of the plan. Everything's going to be okay. There's no cause for worry. There's no cause for for anxiety. And yet what do you find our churches filled with today? Anxious people who are afraid of what's going to happen. A good example, look at the remember the Y2K fiasco? Where you had Christians going out buying ammunition and guns and you know finding a cave somewhere and stocking it for doomsday and they're going to shoot their neighbors who try. That's a, that's a good way to witness to your neighbor. Shoot him when he's coming to get a drink of water. That's helpful. And we act like idiots.
0: All the lights were still on
1: <laughs> Folks, God's in charge. He's got it covered. And I remember there was a guy it was one of the pastors in the church sold his house for he was happy as a clam cuz he sold his house for cash cuz he was convinced that there's going to be total economic meltdown and chaos. There were people in this church that were just scared out of their wits that something was going to happen. And I found where and, and I I remember in some Christian magazines where you could buy a year's worth of provisions. You know, you could buy like, you know, whatever it is, the, 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 the K rations or whatever. You could buy a year's worth of food for your, for your stockpile in case, you know, the economy collapsed. And Christians acted like idiots. In fact, the, the most idiotic people were the Christians.
0: I'm going to confess, Ellen. Man and I bought a few gallons of water, but we figured we'd drink it anyhow. Anyway. <laughs> <And laughs> a few gallons, you know. Not much. But we're trying <laughs> to the yeah. place. I Put extra frosted flakes in the basin. <laughs> <Yeah>. I did. We <laughs> you covered the stuff. <yourself>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but what Christ is telling the disciples here, there's no cause for alarm. <laughs> Calm down. Don't let your heart be troubled. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be scared. I could think of better <laughs> breakfast food, but And why don't you be afraid? Well, in my father's house are many mansions. <clears throat> if we were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. What's he talking about here? Well, this is a a word picture that every one of them completely and totally understood. We don't quite as much because we're not used to that culture. But it's the metaphor of a marriage. In a marriage, a man and a woman would be um, married by their parents before, sometimes even before they were born, or as little children. The parents would arrange that your daughter and my son will get married or whatever. They would arrange that marriage. And then when they were about 13 or 14 years old, they would meet each other for the first time and there would be a betrothal. And that's sort of like a, a, a sort of a ceremony where they would meet each other for the first time, and legally they were considered married, although they had not yet consummated the marriage. They were considered married, and then the the man would go back, and he would add an addition onto his father's house, a place for his family to live. And when he was able to finish that and get it all done and it was all ready, then he would proceed to go to the bride's house where he would pick her up with her friends. They would come back. They would enjoy the celebration of the marriage. At the end of a few days, everybody would leave. The couple would consummate their marriage and live as man and wife. And Christ is saying, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. going to leave and he's saying don't be troubled don't get upset I have to leave to prepare a place for you in my father's house are many dwelling places now when I was growing up you know we have this song there's a mansion over the hilltop you know and we sort of think that you know in heaven Christ is making these big palatial estates for us you know that's not what it's talking about because there's no lawyers in heaven, so there's no deeds. I'm sorry. There's no deeds. Nobody in heaven. We. Everybody owns everything. Yeah. There's no need for.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The the, the the actual word is dwelling place. There are many dwelling there's places.
0: Dwelling places. Yeah. So there's many, it's
1: countable.
0: So is a little limited? No. So I'm thinking many, so maybe a lot of dwelling places. So this is countable, many. So maybe only
1: elect. Well, well, you know, somebody did the mathematical calculations, all right, and um, if you look at the New Jerusalem, we're told in the scripture, that it's about 2,000 miles on a side, all right, I think it's about 2,000 miles, so if you do the math, well, you multiply 2,000 by 2,000 by 2,000, that's, what, 80 million I'm trying to think of how big that is. That's 8 billion, right? 2,000 times 2,000 is 4 million Mm -hmm. times 2,000 is 8 billion. Okay, so that's 8 billion square miles. And someone's calculated there's only been about 40 billion human beings that ever lived. So even if you assume half of the humanity that's ever lived makes it to heaven, right? That's 20 billion living in 88 billion square miles. That means you only have three people per cubic mile. Right? That's a lot of space, right? Three people per cubic mile. It's a big place. It's a beautiful place. But the point that Christ is making is not, I got to go there and work really hard to make this. That's, you see, that's some people say that. Well, you know, if it's if it's taken so long, you must be making a really nice place. Look, God could speak it into existence, right? It's not like God's going to have to have this massive construction project for 2,000 years. That's not the point of what Christ is making. He's using a metaphor to explain. I'm going to go and prepare a place. And it's the the, the emphasis on the going and preparing is not that I'm going to prepare it, but at the right time I'm going to come back and get you. The emphasis is on the return to take us home, not that it takes him so long to prepare it. I will come back and I will receive you to myself. I'm going away, but I am coming back. And that was one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith. You don't have a God that left and is not coming back. Christ is coming back. And what's he going to do? He's going to come back and take us to be with him. Now, we know this to be the rapture from later passages of scripture. But Christ is telling the disciples, don't be afraid. And this is in the context of what? Of him going away and where he is going, they can't come, right? And I'm going to remember this. Wait a minute. He said he's going away, but he's going to come back to take us to himself. Don't worry about it. And where I go, you know, in the way, you know.
0: But this? You That refers to the rapture, him coming back. But does it also have the meaning of him taking them each individually before the rapture? I mean, at their deaths? That's what it's used that's how it's used at a funeral.
1: Yeah, well, that doesn't mean it's the correct interpretation.
0: Yeah, I know that.
1: Yeah, the correct interpretation here is Christ is coming back to receive them to himself. And since it's in the collective sense, you know, I, I think that the best way to understand it is there is coming a time when Christ will return. Now, some say, well, he returns individually when you die, right? Right. So, that, yeah, there's a sense in that, but that's not, I think, what he's talking about here.
0: But he said, my, in, in my Father's house are many mansions, not will be. They, they're, they're not.
1: Yeah, the heaven's a pretty big place. So,
0: yeah, it's not no. crowded. Okay, we will be there after our death until. Oh, Christmas.
1: yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm using the New Jerusalem. People say, well, I'm worried about heaven. It's going to be so crowded. No, it's not. You know, it's a big place. It's a huge place. And and, and it's, it's going to be a beautiful place. It's, you know, John, you know, he's scratching to try and come up with words to describe this place. You know, he can only approximate what he's seeing.
0: Does that imply when you're in heaven awaiting the millennial uh, the rapture when you're in heaven? Does that imply that we have a physical body in those in those in that place? No,
1: it doesn't. That's not what this passage is there for. The point of the and, and, and that's one of the. And I'm glad to bring that up because one of the problems is we can't read all of our rapture. Um, you know, intermediate state knowledge back into this text, right? Because what, how would, how would, if you were disciple number 12, not Judas, but you were number 12 sitting there, how would you have understood Christ when he said this? How would you have taken it? Oh, he's talking about the rapture. You wouldn't have thought about that, Right. Oh, he's talking about uh, the time um, when I d- when he comes back and, and takes me when I die. Nah, you wouldn't have known that. That's not, what you, that's not how you. That's how you. How would you've understood it? You've understood it. He's going to go away, and when the time is right, he's going to come back and take us with him. That's how I would have understood it, Gary. I'm...
0: But there's no, there's no, there's nothing clear in the Bible as what our intermediate
1: intermediate state. It's clear in the sense that number one, it's not going to be a physical um, body that we have. Why is that? Because we receive our our resurrected bodies at the time of the rapture, when the Lord comes back. First Corinthians 15 says that very clearly, right? There is there is a, a soulish body but it's not your permanent eternal body that you will have okay um... it's not that okay it is an intermediate state that it, you are conscious um, you enjoy the presence of god you enjoy fellowship with the holy angels and with other believers you know um, there's an anticipation of the culmination of history you know you look forward to that how long O oh lord you know, you see a little bit of this in Revelation, where those that are martyrs say, "How long are you going to put up with this rebellion?" You know, um, it's going to be a type of existence that we can't even really comprehend.
0: I, I agree, but I, I don't know why why we, you automatically rule out a physical body of some sort.
1: Because the because Bible
0: temporary physical bodies because the light revelation speaks of people shouting out, of people crying out.
1: Of, of, of there is there is a soulish, and, and, and again the body the Bible doesn't give us all the nitty gritty gory details of it. You're right. Um, there is some kind of body that's there. I mean Moses had one on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, there is there's a recognizable form. Um, the witch of Endor, when Samuel came up out of the ground, she knew who he was. Um, There's some kind of a form, but it's not a physical form like we understand physical form to be. And the Bible just doesn't fill us in on that. It doesn't tell us what that's like. But it's it's recognizable. When I go to heaven, I'm not going to see you as a blob of protoplasm or light. I'm going to see you as John. I'm going to be able to recognize you. You're going to be able to recognize me. You know, we'll be able to. We may not have our. If we both died tonight, we we would be able to recognize each other. We we wouldn't have our physical body. That's waiting the future resurrection. But we would recognize one another. We would have some form. Is
0: that stated anywhere in, in passages about the recognition of one another?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, um, when you look at the, the the story of the rich man and Lazarus, um, the rich man certainly knew who Lazarus was. He could recognize him. He knew that was the beggar that laid outside his door. He could recognize Abraham. And I don't think they had name tags on. Um, the disciples recognized Moses and Elijah. What was it on the Mount of Transfiguration? They recognized them. Um, the Witch of Endor recognized Samuel. You know, there's a recognition there. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that... the you know, there's, the, there's no evidence of the contrary, that when we get to heaven, we're totally unrecognizable to each other. John recognized the Lord. Now, at that point, Christ had his resurrected body. So that's probably not a good example when John saw him in Revelation. All right. But but I do think there's evidence that there is a recognition. Now, you look like you do now. No, you'll look a lot better. Than you do now. Yeah. But well, what do you think? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I think we will look at, you know, as we would in our prime of life, whatever that may be.
0: Some people go to the other extreme and they believe when you're in heaven, you're alive in spirit. Can I? More than just spirit, it's a recognizable form.
1: You, the the, the scriptures say you have a material and an immaterial part. I believe you're dichot. I I believe I'm a dichotomist, as opposed to a trichotomist. Trichotomist says your body, soul, and spirit. I think the scriptures teach more clearly. Your body, you have a physical form, material, which is that that which you see here. Then there's an immaterial you. All right. That looks sort of like your material you, but is different. And when you die, that immaterial component goes to one of two places, heaven or Hades. Now, that's your immaterial part. At some point that immaterial component will pick up a physical form at the resurrection. But in the meantime that intermediate form that 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 immaterial part of you is recognizable. Now, you're not spirit, okay? Because spirit is invisible, right? Right. So you're not invisible. You're not omnipresent like God is. We say God is spirit. What we mean by that is he's unrecognized. He has no physical form that we can can recognize. He's not localized to one individual spot in space. He's everywhere, and yet he's nowhere. He's, He's transcendent over creation, okay? God is spirit. We're not going to be disembodied, ghostly spirits, you know, like like you see in the movies and things like that, you know. <laughs> Certainly not, you know, Ghostbusters. We're not even close to that, you know.
0: I, I hope I'm not straying too far here. I often wonder. what I mean, what about I mean, babies that have been aborted and so forth? Obviously, they're being. Yeah. I mean, where they have a form? That's yeah. Like an adult form? Yeah. You know, could go through
1: heaven as a screaming little baby. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's been all of it. Heaven as a baby walking around in diapers. That doesn't make any sense, you know.
0: Um,
1: Yeah, and and, and what's interesting, you know, I've done enough genealogical research. You know, I have my picture of my grandmother all the way on, and I can recognize her. You know, from the age of three all the way up, I can recognize that as my grandmother. I know I could recognize her. You know, and, 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 and how, the Bible doesn't fill in all those details. It doesn't give us all the wherefores and what's and hows and that. It hints that we are recognizable, that we are in, a, in, a, in, a, in an immaterial state, but there's going to come a time when we will receive a body, a physical body, a physical form. Um, you know, it does not give us all the details. What Christ is trying to get along, get across to the disciples here, is that even though he is going away, he is coming back. All right? He's not going to leave them alone. He's going to come back, and he makes it... in in a comforting way, that I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And immediately they would know what he was talking about. That he's going to go and get a place set up for them, and when the time is right, he's going to come and take them to be with him. It's a a metaphor of comfort. I care for you. I'm not going to leave you. And Thomas, of course, asked him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Again, they they still have totally, completely, 100% missed what Christ is telling them. And he said, what a bunch of idiots. Now, if you were there, you'd be one of the idiots. All right. Because they didn't understand this yet. We're looking back saying, well, how could they not have seen it? Well, that's easy to do, right? That's really easy to do. But, you know, they didn't They didn't get it. And Thomas is saying, well, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know how to get there? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. How do we get there? What is the way to you? What's the way? What's, how do I get to where you're going? What's the way? And what did Christ say? I am the way. Am the, way. Hmm. the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. Except through me. This is one of the great yeah, I am passages.
0: Okay, so how how can ecumenicalism stand in light of that?
1: It can't. It can't. They gotta ignore it.
0: Basically to be ecumenical is to be You can't.
1: This this here is one of the clearest statements. Of the of the exclusivity of Christ, I am the way. there he didn't say, well, I'm one of the ways, Thomas. you know, we've got a bunch of ways you can get there, you know, if, if this doesn't work out and ring your bell, go come a Buddhist, you'll get to the same spot. You know, we'll make everybody's going. And that's the drivel that you hear today. Look, it doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian or a Catholic or a Baptist. We're all headed the same way. We're all going to get to the same way. That's 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 the guys on a wide road to destruction saying that kind of stuff. Christ is saying, you know what? There's one way back to the father. And that is through me. And there isn't any other way.
0: Is ecumenical, is that a new term? Is it
1: something... Yeah, it's been buzzing around. I remember as a kid, we are talking about the ecumenical movement, and, you know, the, the big one was the Worldwide Council of Churches that came along. And, um, you know, the, the whole thing is it's, you know, the whole concept there is, that, you know, it's just one big happy family. And what people... Idolatry takes many forms. And And... Most American Christians are idolaters because they got the right God but they see him the wrong way. They've got a Jesus that is not judgmental. Rather, he's the kind, loving, forgiving, patient God. He would never send somebody to hell. Clark Pinnock says that up north. He's a Canadian theologian at has fallen off the wagon. It's not. I don't even think he's a Christian. He's behind the wider mercy of God and, and all kinds of stuff. Where God has a wider mercy. God, God would never be so unkind as to send a native from Bongo Bongo who never heard about Christ to hell. He would never do that. God has a wider mercy. God will accept them. It's the Mother Teresa theology where how dare I, I would never tell a Hindu about Jesus because if they're sincere, they'll go to heaven. You know, Christ—it it, it is heresy to think that. But it, it makes for good stuff. And look at look at what we hear on TV. Everybody's saying the same thing. No one gets on TV and says, you know, Christ said he's the only way. And unless you're a born again Christian, you're not getting to heaven. Well, what a pompous you know you are. You should—that's kind of stuff that comes across, right? Look at the uh, discussion of Deepak Chopra. John MacArthur and Rabbi Kushner on Larry King Live, and you'll see just how crazy these guys are.
0: Well, just to, well Chuck Colson. We oh, don't get me on about, Chuck. Let me just... His first book, Born Again, mm-hmm. he, was, he was on target with that, but it was just... It seemed like he became ecumenical later. Yeah, because his
1: wife is a Catholic.
0: Well, and so the Billy Graham kind of... Con- yeah,
1: yeah, Billy Graham. Yeah, that's true.
0: So, what's the explanation for that? To be, to be, I mean, it seemed to me that Chuck Colson was truly born. The explanation
1: uh, for that is that these people are, are theologically naive, and they have compromised. They've compromised. And, and, and I don't know what their interior, you know, I don't know their hearts. I don't know why they say that. But, but you know, when you get to be a big shot preacher like that, there's a tendency. You don't want to say anything to offend people. And by its nature, the cross is an offensive thing. When you stand up and you say, Christ said he is the only way. That is something that flies in the face of our PC culture. Why is it that most Americans have no? Comp- Why is it that most Americans can't understand the Islamic mind? Well, it's crazy to start out with, but but the reason is is because over there there's a right, and everything else is wrong, and we don't think in those kind of terms in America anymore. We don't think that. You know, we want to look at the Democratic. Let's just sit down and talk to them. You know, we'll be able to reason it. You can't. You've got a culture in conflict, you know, where where you think here, well, we can sit and reason this thing out. And there's a culture over there that there's a right and there's a wrong and they think they're right. And there's no discussion under that.
0: Nancy and Dennis have tried
1: it over the Right. Dennis. I can't believe he keeps getting elected. I don't know. I think there's stuff in the ballot boxes in Lakewood, you know. But but the whole point is that's just an example we have this mentality, let's just sit down and talk about it, let's reason it out. And and how dare I say that I have the only answer? How dare I think that I have the right answer? That's the whole postmodern emergent church drivelly that you get. How dare I how dare what gives you the right to stand up and say you've got the right answer? How do you know that? How can you be so arrogant as to think you've got it? I think
0: Islam is more threatened by our liberalism than
1: Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. But the, the point I'm trying to make is in the Islamic world, there's right. There's wrong. There's nothing in between. There's no discussion. There's no debate. It's right or it's wrong. In America, it's all gray. The only wrong thing in America is to think you're right. Try it. Get a bathrobe and go down on Mud Bowl and tell everybody you're Moses and you'll have 20 people walking around. Asking you that you will now go there and say Jesus Christ is the only way and campus security will haul you off the campus. I'm not making it up. Try it. You know, the world is not one here. And when Christ stands up and says, I'm the only way to God, that's an offensive message. That's offensive. Because that means you got to come to God on His terms, not yours. And see, we don't want that. We want to come to God on our terms. That's the human, sinful, arrogant part of us leaking out.
0: The Unitarians have a new ad campaign. It's, um, find us and you shall see.
1: Find us and you shall what? Now. You
0: know, that's all Unitarian. As long
1: as
0: you're seeking, come on in. You yeah, yeah. think you found
1: the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's like philosophy class. I took a philosophy class at Oberlin and all he could do is talk about, you know, all the different kinds of questions. But when you stand and say, well, I got the answer to that, you know, class is over. There's no need for philosophers anymore, right? Because all they're into is trying to find the truth. Christ is the truth. Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And those are exclusive terms. He's not saying I'm a way, I'm a truth, and I'm a life. I'm one of many. I'm the only one. There's an exclusivity there. You want to come to the Father, you come by me. I am the door of the sheepfold. If you want to come into the sheepfold, you come through me. You don't climb in over the wall. And the pivotal question of history is who is Jesus and what does that mean to me? And the disciples had a right. There's no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's it. There is no other way. That is God's design. And Christ is telling the disciples, you don't need to worry about the way because I am the way. I am the way. And if you had known me, you'd have known my father also and from now on you know him and have seen him if you knew me you'd know my father now this is not everything that Christ said but he's trying to, and of course you know later after a break we're going to discuss what philip well well shows the father and we will all be happy christ is christ is saying i am the way the truth and the life and he's saying i am the exact representation of the father you want to know what the father's like Look at me. I am the representation of the Father. Philip, you don't need to see the Father, because if you see me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because I am the perfect, 100% exact representation of everything that the Father is. If you want to know what He's like, look at what I'm like. We're the same. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you
0: for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.